0: This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's
1: a human being in a box.
0: This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal.
1: We're not slaves. we're African. It's the stuff the British
0: stole.
1: I just don't believe that. It just does
0: not stand up from ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. Six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So I'm not someone who rolls their eyes when they hear how much professional athletes make, but I still had a moment of shock when I heard about the Otani contract—seven hundred million dollars for one player. Today on the podcast, what the Otani drama tells us about the future of sports entertainment. I'm Alamine Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Where do you begin? Where do you begin with this drama around Shohei Ohtani? Let's put it this way. If you're a baseball fan, you know. I don't have to tell you anything. You already know. If you're not, here's the deal, okay? Ohtani is a Japanese free agent who has been called the greatest player of all time. People don't really give, like, a lot of qualifiers to this. They just go, like, no, 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 he's just the greatest player of all time. Like, better than Babe Ruth. And up until Saturday, it kind of looked like he might sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. But instead, that's not going to happen because he's signing with the L.A. Dodgers. The L.A. Dodgers are going to pay him $700 million for a 10-year contract. That is the most total guaranteed money of any contract in professional sports history. And if you're counting, I'm not counting, That's roughly translates to about $4,000 a minute for the next 10 years of playing. Which has a lot of people wondering, why would any player be worth that much to a team and what does that say about the direction of sports entertainment? Morgan Campbell's here with his thoughts. He's a sports writer. He's the host of Bring It In on CBC Gem. Morgan, what's good, man? Welcome to the show.
1: <laughs> it's always good to be back. And I don't know if your audience and I listen... All mics are hot mics. I hope your audience did not hear me chuckling when when you said he almost came to Toronto. But <laughs> I'm not sure how close that ever really was to happening. Toronto made you know the final two or three contenders, but like, the but Dodgers had such a had such a tight inside track on signing uh, Otani that. As much as we were surprised when the news dropped on Saturday, we should sure. not have been that surprised.
0: Well, okay, I, okay, I want to talk about that in just a moment about this like yes. emotional drama of like, oh my god, Otani might be coming to Toronto. There's a jet. Who's on the jet? I don't know who's on the jet. We're going to talk about that <laughs> in just a minute. But I guess like let's just start with the basic reaction to that number. I mean, like, dude, I'm not rattled by a lot of things that happen in like professional sports usually. Yes, seven hundred million dollars is like my jaw on the floor. Kind of money was it did you have the same reaction
1: yes only because what we had been hearing up to that point was and the, well this uh, even the, the the uh the margins here yeah tell you how ridiculous this has all gotten is we what we'd been hearing up to that point was 500 million dollars and then 600 million dollars and here we are talking about 100 million dollars like it's uh <laughs> like it's nothing uh, like, like it's, it's just a little bit like, extra, like it's like it's Couch cushion change. (laughs) You know? You're like,
0: might as well find him another $100 million.
1: Yes. So then when he finally signed and the number was $700 million. Yeah. Because $600 million was already going to be the most lucrative contract we had ever heard of, certainly in in North American sport. There might be some soccer contracts that are richer. Um, But $700 million, that's more money than anyone has ever promised anybody. And if... MLB if Major League Baseball is like the NFL, yeah. the NFL, if I promise you 230 million dollars like the Cleveland Browns did to Deshaun Watson, you have to put that money in escrow. Right. So that money has to actually be there. So it it's has not like to Boston, exist. It's right? not yeah. yeah. It's not like boxing where I can promise you, yeah, I'm going to give you $50 million to fight this guy. Here's your advance. You get the advance and then you just, the second half just never comes and you got to take me to court. This is not that. So somebody somewhere has $700 million just sitting and that they're going to dribble out to, to Otani. Uh, over the course of all these years. Well,
0: you should also, before we, before we started talking, you mentioned that the deal doesn't quite break down to it's $70 million over 10 years. It's not quite that. <laughs> and we, we have a bit more detail about the amount of money and how it's going to be paid to Otani. Can you just tell us yes. a little bit more about that?
1: So what we heard at first, what we learned at first, was that Otani, it was Otani's idea to say, hey, this $700 million over 10 years, instead of giving it to me all up front, let's defer a lot of that money. Because uh, if you give me the $70 million per year, every year, it might uh, bankrupt hamstring you. you. It, it, well, more, <laughs> Not bankrupt. I don't think right. I don't think Guggenheim, Guggenheim Partners is in danger of being bankrupt by this deal. But okay. in terms of what they are budgeting for Major League Baseball contracts for talent, yeah. it might restrict them. Right. So what Otani suggests is deferring some of the salary, which happens in baseball. And in baseball, there are... There's no salary cap, but there's a competitive balance tax that you wind up paying. But uh, So teams and players can defer any percentage of their contract that they feel like uh, deferring. And right. so all we knew was that some percentage of this money was going to be deferred so that after the 10 years that he's done playing, he'll still continue to get paid. So what we learned on Friday afternoon was that most of the money is deferred. So Otani himself, in terms of baseball salary, is taking home, is grossing $2 million a year. For 10 years. For 10 years. Which and takes you so to
0: $20 million of his yes, $700 million. So
1: the other $680 million he's going to make over the next 10 years after this contract. <laughs> so they're going to be paying him essentially $68 million a year not to play baseball after paying him $2 million a year for 10 years to play baseball. But again, there there are... Luxury tax implications right. for this it 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 frees up more money up front for the Dodgers to sign talent um, but it, what what blew my mind about this was all right i'm concerned I want you to be able to sign as many players as possible sure. for as much player as much money as possible right now while i 'm here, and so only pay me two million dollars a year, but after I leave, you still owe me the sixty eight million dollars a year, and what happens to your ability uh to, sign to keep talent? signing? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's not matter to me. It does, I, yeah. That's, be, not, that's not I'll a him retired. problem. Yeah, but, I'll be retired. Yeah, I'll be in a resort somewhere.
0: So, Morgan, I want to. <laughs> I think he'll be buying resorts somewhere. Right. Uh, I I want to ask you about two things. One yes. is this whole story about him. And there's all the secrecy around the negotiation, the idea that he might be coming to Toronto, might be coming, you know, um, And because there was a lot of hope in Jays Nation yes. on Friday. And I was like, I'm not really a baseball follower, but I follow a lot of people who talk about baseball. And they were all holding their breath. I thought they might pass yes. out on Friday because they thought this might be possible. And then maybe you want to connect that with the fact that, like, this is a player who's now going to make almost $300 million more than the next best pay player. Why would the Blue Jays or the Dodgers want to pay someone that much and have all these negotiations and the secret drama? What was going on there?
1: Okay, I'll deal with the the second one first. The reason teams, two reasons that teams think Otani is worth all this money. First is on the field, is that he is, when he is healthy, uh, he's a unique player. We haven't seen a player like this since the Babe Ruth days in the sense that uh, he is an elite-level pitcher who pitches – Every fifth day, just like any member of your um, starting rotation. So you have baseball fans listening. Whoever, whoever you can think of as a great pitcher in Major League Baseball right now. Sure. If Otani is not that good, he's almost that good. And at the same time, as a hitter, uh, as an as as an as in terms of his offensive production, um, whoever you can think of, Otani is better. Like he led the league in. Several important offensive categories this year, and in in pitching, he didn't lead the league, but he was among the league leaders. And if he had pitched more, uh, his stats would have qualified him for some of these end of year awards. But I don't mean um, the
0: stats. I kind of mean like his value to a team. Like why so would this, a is, what, wanna, this yeah. is what I'm saying? Yeah. So th-
1: on the field, he can contribute at an elite level in two ways. He is two players in one, uh, which is why sometimes he gets paid like two superstars like, in one, maybe four. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. But the, the thing about Otani now is that he has had his second uh, ulnar collateral ligament surgery, yeah. uh, which baseball people call a Tommy John surgery because Tommy John was the first – a pitcher, first person to have this surgery. Yeah. Um, and so he's not allowed to pitch. He's not medically cleared to pitch for the 2024 season. So he, he might come back uh, and hit as well as he's ever hit. But his on-field value is the fact that he has two players. In okay. One. And he's not going to be two players until at least 2025, and then we'll see how well he pitches. Now, off the field, and this is also, uh, what makes him so valuable to teams is that he is tremendously popular in Japan, as you can imagine. He had a superstar mm. career over there before he came over here. Um, and when a player of his stature, like this would be, he in Japan, I guess, would be like LeBron James is, you know, or, um, Sydney, peak Sydney Crosby, like that. Yeah. Um, and so when he comes over here to play, every sponsor, every fan in Japan takes notice. So now, if you're a team, uh, you're a North, you're a team that's based anywhere in North America, and most of your sponsors are North American, most of your fans are North American, then all of a sudden you sign Otani, and these big money Japanese sponsors show up at your door and say, "We take our money, please." We go How where much he of goes. Our money do we you go where want? he goes. Yes.
0: Right. So So all of a sudden, yeah,
1: yeah, this this deal makes a lot more financial sense above and beyond what Otani is going to deliver to you on the field because he will boost ticket sales. Um, And he will, if if you're the Blue Jays, you won, I think, 84 games last season, kind of snuck into the back end of the playoffs. But if he can boost you to like a legitimate playoff team and get you deeper into the playoffs, like the marginal value of every ticket sold once you make the playoffs is much higher than the value of a ticket that you sell during the regular season. So that's how uh, those are the Two ways, Otani, o- even for this exorbitant salary number, it yeah. starts to make sense.
0: I gotta say, I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it as when you get a player like this like yes he can do many things on the field and the idea of him being two players in one that's very powerful but with a bigger deal is this idea of like opening up a new market for your yes. team because suddenly if you're the Dodgers you know you're selling a lot more jerseys to a, maybe to a market that had not previously bought your jerseys you might you yeah, know well, might not like, bought your particular merch
1: and in, in 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 to get sports nerdy about it like the yeah. jersey sales merchandise sales yeah. they're collectively bargained and they in every sport the money from that just kind of goes to this general General revenue pool sure. that all the teams split. Sure. But when all these Japanese corporations again start calling you, they've never paid attention to you before. But now here's Japanese Aviation Electronics saying, "Hey Dodgers, we have—I <laughs> don't know how much they pay—we <laughs> have a hundred million dollars just for you this year."
0: Yeah. That's uh, You know In what? You Suddenly you go, I understand the $700 yes. million. I think you can totally make that work. Morgan yeah. Campbell, we're out of time, but man, I appreciate you being here. This <laughs> makes a little more sense to me now. I can pick my <laughs> jaw up from the floor. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, dude. Hey, Anytime. Of course. Morgan Campbell is a sports writer and the host of Bring It In on CBC Gem. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford, and we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything
1: on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat. Come to life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud, and you're listening to Commotion. Okay, before we even get into it, let us start with this. Never gets old, man. That is a giant roar that is from the Godzilla minus one trailer. It is a new movie in the Godzilla franchise. But what makes this one different is that it's coming from where it all started. This is from the Japanese studio Toho that gave us the world gave the world its very first Godzilla film back in 1954. This film is a reimagining of that original movie. It features an all-Japanese cast. It's set in Japan around World War II. Since its release, Godzilla Minus One has been a giant hit with fans, with critics. It has also become the highest grossing Japanese film ever released in the United States. All of this while the Godzilla franchise is about to turn 70 this year. So, Bill Sutsui is the author of Godzilla on My Mind 50 Years of the King of Monsters. Michelle Cho is a commotion regular. She's a professor of East Asian studies at the University of Toronto. Michelle, Bill, welcome to the show. How's it going?
2: Good. It's Thanks a, for having
0: me. I'm happy to be are here. Uh, Bill, I can't help but notice that behind you, you've got uh, an immense amount, let's say, of Godzilla <laughs> toys. That's what I'm looking at, including a pretty giant one that's like directly to your left there. Tell me the story about how you got all these Godzilla toys behind you.
3: So uh, I've loved Godzilla my entire life, Uh, and when I started teaching, uh, I put a requirement in place for my students who wanted recommendation letters to go to Japan. If I write the letter, you've got to bring me a Godzilla toy back. Uh, And so in that way, I filled my office up.
0: (laughs) Well, they look wonderful. The one that's right behind you is giant, uh, and I love that you're like, no, 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 this is the space for this monster to occupy. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about Godzilla Minus One, man. It is now the highest grossing Japanese film ever released in the United States. States. You're a long-time Godzilla fan, as we can visually see. How'd you feel about it? How'd you feel about the movie?
3: Uh, So, you know, so I've been a Godzilla fan for over 50 years now. And Mm. for most of that time, Japanese monster movies, uh, with actors in rubber suits destroying toy cities and bad dubbing have not gotten (laughs) a lot of artistic respect, (laughs) even as they've proven really popular with international audiences. Yeah. So it is amazing for me now to see a Godzilla movie from Japan be a hit at the global box office and gain broad critical acclaim.
0: I, we should say the original Godzilla movie drew inspiration from the atomic bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. That killed over 200,000 Japanese people, mostly civilians. Meanwhile, we just learned that Oppenheimer, the biopic about the creator of the bomb, is finally set to release in Japan. Uh, Bill, you're of Japanese descent, what comes to mind as these two movies are kind of having a moment at the same time?
3: So over the 70 years and 30 films of the Godzilla franchise in Japan, the monster's nuclear origins have always been front and center, Mm. reflecting the ongoing struggle of the Japanese people to find closure from the trauma of the atomic bombings Mm. and to move beyond defeat in 1945, both psychologically and in international relations. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's no surprise that Godzilla minus one continues to tackle in some very new and creative ways the ongoing legacies of World War II and nuclear victimization in the Japanese imagination. Uh, What's more surprising to me is to see Hollywood looking back now with Oppenheimer and trying to make Mm. sense of the dawn of the atomic Mm. age and America's role in it. Uh, It's a very different approach uh, than using a giant walking metaphor like Godzilla uh, to engage (laughs) with politically sensitive issues. I
0: was going to say like Oppenheimer is certainly not a film that is um, celebratory of the the origins of the atomic bomb. It's actually like kind of paints it as this thing that is like this is quite morally dubious and we're not really sure we should have gotten into this. Michelle, what do you make of this moment, the fact that Godzilla minus one and Oppenheimer are sort of colliding in this cultural moment?
2: Yeah, you know, I think about it, it as a kind of global media scholars as a, a sign of a kind of contrapuntal relationship, maybe, mm. between the way that Hollywood sees the world and then the way that the world talks back. And so I think it's really valuable for viewers that they can go see both of these perspectives on the atomic age, but sure. that requires that people take Godzilla seriously, which hopefully this conversation will convince people to do.
0: I t- say a little more about that. What do you mean by take Godzilla seriously? Do you get the impression that Godzilla is, is, is sort of in the silly campy
2: m- mm-hmm. mode
0: in North America?
2: I think for a lot of people who are not fans of Godzilla or who, you know, may think about their taste. So think about the difference between Oppenheimer and Godzilla in terms of the kind of audience demographics that they're aiming for. You know, if people are like, I see serious films at the movie theater, you know, versus (laughs) I go for entertainment, you know, there you're not going to reach the same audience with these two films. But I want to get people to sort of think about the way that, you can go see a film for entertainment value but still learn a lot about mm-hmm. the world the geopolitical situation these these films can be both entertaining and teach you something so mm-hmm. that's what i'm i'm kind of that's what i always try to say about you know films that people might otherwise dismiss
0: that's a, that's a good point because like Oppenheimer is sort of explicitly trying to be like, I'm in the, you know, like a sort of the very serious biopic, you know, prestige mm-hmm. cinema kind of category. And I guess we don't really think of Godzilla movies or monster movies in general as uh, occupying that space. Uh, Bill, we should say between Japan and the U.S. alone, there have been a slew of Godzilla films, cartoons, other releases over the decades. What would you say is like the biggest difference in the way that Godzilla and the, as a monster has been portrayed in Japan also uh, compared to how it's been portrayed in the United States?
3: Well, the best of the Japanese films have wrestled with significant social and political issues. Hmm. In 1954's Gojira with Atomic Age Anxieties. In Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which is a wonderful film, uh, in 1971 with a threat of industrial pollution. Mm. And now with Godzilla Minus One, we have a very human and I think humanistic drama about the traumas of war and the need for communities to come together in moments of crisis. Mm -hmm. The four and soon to be five American films have been pretty much standard Hollywood blockbusters with great (laughs) special effects, Mm. big name star power and huge marketing budgets. But in general, they've been lacking in terms of
0: historical perspectives,
3: a real political
0: edge. Sounds like you're saying Hollywood is kind of dropping the ball on Godzilla a little bit. I mean, like, that's... (laughs) Well, okay, all right. We'll... I want to explore that in just a moment, but we should say Godzilla Minus One is actually not even the only Godzilla release right now, because on the U.S. side, Apple TV just dropped Monarch, A Legacy of Monsters. This is a show that centers on the adventures of the great-grandkids of a Japanese and American couple trying to figure out, you know, their family connections to Godzilla and also to other monsters with the help of their grizzled tour guide. Played by Hollywood star Kurt Russell Take a listen This world, it's not ours
2: These monsters and Monarch Have taken everything from me No more
3: The world is on fire If you want to save millions of lives We can use some help
0: Okay, so that's from the new Apple TV series, Monarch, A Legacy of Monsters. I'm talking all things Godzilla with Bill Sutsui and commotion regular Michelle Cho. Bill, this new series is a part of this larger cinematic monsterverse, you know, which includes pretty much every U.S.-made Godzilla and King Kong film release in the past 10 years. How how does a TV series compare the film, you think?
3: You know, what I find really interesting is that in both Monarch and Godzilla Minus One, the monsters aren't really the center of attention. Mm. They're both at the core very human dramas mm-hmm. focused on families and issues of loss and the search for redemption and wholeness. And this could not be more different from Legendary's 2021 Godzilla vs. Kong, which was honestly just the story of a big ape beating up a big reptile <laughs> and very much responded to the world's post-pandemic needs for psychic and physical release. But today, with Monarch and Godzilla Minus One, audiences seem to be less interested in that cathartic pleasure of giant monsters hammering on each other mm-hmm. and more receptive to human stories. Stories that explore the ways individuals work out their psychological and emotional
0: challenges. I was going to say, like, Michelle, to me, that is... Always kind of the goal or should be the goal of monster movies, right? Is like, what does the presence of this thing say about us? What does this reveal about how we interact with trauma, how we interact with, with, you know, with difficulty? um at, at its core that's what a monster movie should do but then mm-hmm. as as bill just pointed out you you get movies that are a giant ape beating on a giant you know reptile um and then we kind of like lose the plot a little bit what is it about hollywood you think that that makes it go you know what we're going to remove ourselves from the context of the birth of these stories and go into the direction of people just want spectacle
2: mhm i mean i think that you know there's a way that Hollywood has really leaned into its technological mastery over, you know, visual effects. And it is selling that in order to bring audiences into the theater. Um, The Godzilla franchise, as it's been done by Legendary, it's leaning into this like world building, which I think is really uh, important and smart. But in some ways, it's it's letting go, I think. It's more like, gee whiz, look at what we can do as opposed to, <laughs> you know, talking to folks who have not just this kind of fanish mastery over the world, yeah. but also have a really strong emotional connection to it.
0: Michelle, we've talked in the past about the, the inroads that Netflix and other U.S. media platforms are making in Korea, for example, with Squid Game being the biggest example to date. The Godzilla franchise is one of the earliest examples of the East Asian and U.S. entertainment economies. What do you think these films and TV releases say about the state of relationships between the U.S. and Japanese media relations?
2: Hmm. So I think that uh, U.S. and Japanese media companies, they're very entangled in a certain way by hmm. the same sources of capital, right? But. At the same time, they're kind of contrapuntal. So in the Godzilla franchise case, you know, Toho, the Japanese studio that just made, you know, Minus One, um, it was kind of prompted in a way to revive Godzilla after the Hollywood reboot in 2014, which um, it was kind of interesting because, you know, Hollywood had tried to do Godzilla before without a lot of success. (laughs) Um, But then this 2014 film, it, it turned it into this kind of, you know, big budget uh, effects driven kind of tentpole sort of film that we've come to know of with the Marvel movies and these like, you know, really huge, huge budget films. And so I think that that was a really important turning point where Godzilla kind of exited the B movie (laughs) category, you know, it became something else. And that's something that's going on in, in, in Hollywood as well, or just, you know, yeah, taking genre movies out of this, you know, arena of just cheap entertainment, right? Um, So, yeah, so, so there's this kind of conversation happening, mm. but still we see a huge disparity between the budgets, the marketing, the kind of reach that a Japanese-made feature that is addressing its own domestic audience, mm. but also hopes to talk to Godzilla fans around the world has, and the kind of Hollywood, you know, huge... One, you know, I don't know, billion dollar sort of budget time kind of film. Um, And so that disparity is clear. But I think Minus One has done really an amazing job at showing that that's not going to always be the case. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of folks are talking about the budget here. Minus one was made for around 10 to 15 million dollars. The number oh, wow. is not yeah. really, you know, it's it's not totally clear. That's one tenth of the budget of the 2014 film. Yeah. So um, so yeah, you know, it's it's proof. Minus one is proof in a way that globi- globally appealing works, they don't need to come out of Hollywood or carry an American sensibility mm-hmm. to reach audiences around the world. And especially, this is important in a franchise. That's kind of coming out of Japan's attempt to reconcile itself with the experience that it had as the sole nation that suffered the atomic bomb mm-hmm. that then had to make up really quickly in ways with its uh, with, with the nation that bombed them, right? So the us and Japan relationship is is such a core element of understanding how to really approach this 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 franchise
0: but then bill do you see um if we sort of see these uh these movies um as in conversation with each other the the movies that are made in japan and the movies that are made in the us um do you see it as a tussle over ownership of the story um and in the us maybe Uh, Sanitize is not maybe the word for it, but maybe make it much simpler than it actually is versus in Japan, making minus one, being an effort to say, you know what? Actually, we're not going to take out the core political trauma elements of the story because they are the thing that makes the story what it is. You know,
3: the legendary and Toho narratives are going in very different directions Mm. uh, right now, but uh, I think to the Japanese, what the core of Godzilla is, is that origin in uh, uh, nuclear testing in the 1950s hmm. and that is common to the two series and so what i think is uh really uh, uh interesting uh is the different ways that can be interpreted you right now uh, uh whether i think it is to from my perspective uh very heartfelt ways uh in japan and perhaps more commercial ways uh <laughs> uh, uh and you know uh
0: that's very polite of you bill i really it's very polite of you
3: I'm going to be honest, I've loved the legendary films. Uh, yeah. I love uh, Monarch, but I love them in a different way sure. than I like the Japanese movies. Yeah. You know, what I loved when I watched the 2014 Godzilla in a big movie theater in Dallas, Texas, by the end of the film, everybody was up in their seats screaming about Godzilla. <laughs> That's what Hollywood does so well, yeah. right? When I watched Godzilla Minus One, also in a full theater, people left just saying, what a great film that is.
0: Right. Uh, Bill, maybe we got about a minute left here. Uh, the Godzilla franchise was built on pretty simple premise, right? A massive lizard has gone rogue. Seventy years later, there's something about the story that is still captivating to people around the world. What is it that? What is that thing? What is so captivating about this premise?
3: Honestly, Elamin, who doesn't love watching giant (laughs) monsters shooting heat rays and destroying cities? (laughs) But beyond that, the Godzilla films call into question some key aspects of contemporary life, whether that be nuclear energy or military-industrial complexes or the power of governments to deal with existential challenges like natural disasters, climate change, Mm -hmm. or rampaging radioactive lizards. (laughs) Uh, So Godzilla has a real visceral appeal, but Godzilla also taps into our genuine fears and our deepest anxieties and forces us to think about a wide range of topics we'd sometimes rather ignore.
0: Uh, Michelle, 30 seconds to you.
2: Yeah. So for me, watching Godzilla Minus One, which I I encourage everybody to go see, it really, really captured the cost of war and the need for peace. Mm. And that's something that's really relevant right now. So Godzilla can, you know, it can be what we need it to stand in for in the time that we're encountering it. So go watch the film. It has a wonderful um but really necessary message of peace.
0: I uh I like what you both are bringing to this conversation because uh I think we've been too encouraged particularly by I think the legendary run uh legendary pictures run of Godzilla movies to think of Godzilla as kind of like one-dimensional like with all the all the all the heart uh, taken out of the story but also all of the politics taken out of the story so I appreciate you guys setting the record straight Michelle, Bill thank you for your time
2: Thank you Thank
0: you Of course Michelle Cho is a professor of East Asian Studies at the University of Toronto and William Sutsui is an academic and author of the book Godzilla On My Mind 50 Years of the King of Monsters Godzilla Minus One is in theaters now and you can catch the weekly episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters on Apple TV That is it for the podcast today. Hey, remember, first of all, you can listen to any episode of the show, anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, could you do me the favor of going to Instagram, following our Instagram. We are at commotionCBC. My name is Abdul Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here tomorrow, I would love to see you then.